15 documentaries have been selected for the Oscars shortlist. That's the round that comes before nominations. We're going to hear from seven of those filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Last week, our podcast partnered with the entertainment newsletter, The Ankler, for a live event in Los Angeles where I interviewed filmmakers behind seven films coming from four different continents. Even if you haven't seen these films, there's plenty to take away from these conversations. On this episode, we'll hear from the makers of A Still Small Voice, To Kill a Tiger, American Symphony, and The Eternal Memory. Our next episode will cover three more titles. See our show notes for links to the film trailers. Our first guest is director Luke Lawrenson, who divides his time between Mexico City and the United States. His first film, Midnight Family, was about independent ambulance drivers in Mexico City, capturing life and death moments. His latest is A Still Small Voice, set at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. He follows the work of a spiritual chaplain named Margaret, also known as Madi, as she undergoes a residency to help patients and their families confront mortality. Her supervisor, David, gives this explanation. There's an old adage, don't just stand there, do something. And we flip that. We say, don't just do something. Stand there or be there because there's connection and healing in that. We get to witness profound dialogues between David and Madi about what it means to do this work. How do you absorb other people's pain? How do you set boundaries for yourself? I have to admit, I felt daunted by this subject matter and held off watching for a long time. If you have the same hesitation, I'd encourage you to get over it and look for this film when it comes to video on demand in March. Now, we'll take you to the Culver Theater in Los Angeles to hear our conversation. Please welcome the director, cinematographer, and editor of A Still Small Voice, Luke Lawrenson. Luke, what drew you into the world of hospital chaplains in the first place? Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. Thank you all for being here. My sister has worked as a hospital chaplain for many years, and and she's the one that opened my eyes to the field. I I think I had a similar reaction to you of why would I ever want to go there? And learning a bit more about it sort of flipped the question as sort of where else would I want to go to be in a space where the biggest questions imaginable were everyday work and to be with people who were learning actively how to engage and be open without crumbling themselves. It was really a life-changing experience for me. So Margaret, who you were following, she's had training in this, but you were going through the six months of the residency right alongside her without necessarily the same training. How did you handle the intensity of it? I, (laughs) I don't think I quite know yet is sort of the, the answer that it comes quick as the honest answer. Yeah, I, I, there was, you know, a, a young sort of naive energy in me that got this project going. And I don't think I really knew what I was signing up for. But I think what I'm most grateful for is I, I chose the structure of the residency as the place to focus. And for nine months, I was there with David and Mati learning what they were learning. And I really do feel like I went through this residency and came out the other end with real experience and toolkits and frameworks that that work and that don't just apply to chaplaincy, but apply to filmmaking and to just my life in general. I think my relationships with other people, the clarity with which I see my feelings and thoughts, like it, it really has changed. And it was also incredibly difficult. I mean, there is an incredible power of language in this film as people strive to find words in times where words normally fail us. Mm. And there is a gentle pace to this film because in moments of 
grief or facing mortality. It takes us some moments to find the words and we have to let the words sink in. Yeah. And, and for pacing a film, it's a kind of extra challenge. I mean, this film, once you get into the rhythm of this film, I felt as an audience member, I was just, I was totally locked into it. But the kind of things that they teach you at film school would be different than what the pace of this film is. And I, I wonder how you kind of allowed yourself as the editor of the film to give yourself permission to have let it have mm -hmm. that pace. My last film, Midnight Family, is sort of a, a car chase thriller of sorts. It's, you know, ambulances chasing each other through Mexico City to, to find patients. And I edited that film as well and came into the edit of this one wanting a similar... <laughs> speed and learned that the soul of the material just disappeared when I was editing it too much. And it took really months of work to trust that these conversations, when left alone, were most powerful. And that was also the approach we took with how the film was shot. The camera is still and really working towards a feeling of just being there in the room close and intimate with the people that are experiencing each of these moments and not doing anything to make it better or make it worse, but just to have the feeling of a real caring presence. And there's one scene in the film that I really struggled to edit because I was trying to tighten it too much and it ended up being in the film like an eight minute conversation of people wearing masks <laughs> and trusting that that could work was sort of a leap of faith. But it really does work. So an unexpected thing that happens in this film, it, it, it begins, you see this really warm relationship between David, the supervisor, and Mahdi, who's going through the residency. And then over the course of some weeks or months, attention creeps in. And one of the things that they have a debate about is is boundaries and mm -hmm. like a specific example she gives is if I'm dealing with a suicidal person I'm not going to tell them this is my office hours don't call me afterwards and he challenges her to think about that and to kind of protect her own self to do this work on a long-term basis and that's a really fascinating yeah I've Still not sure who's right or wrong in that conversation. But since documentary makers also deal with boundaries, you had to deal with this on both of your films. What did you learn from that? It's a scene that is very personal for me because I, like you, don't know who's right. <laughs> I think Mati is sort of willing to throw herself into this work with a real open heart. And David is somebody who's been doing it for a long time and has built up a certain callousness is maybe the word that even he would use that is sustainable. And there's something about both of those approaches that I can sort of get in the boat with. I see sustainability and boundaries as sort of a core part of my craft. Learning how to navigate those issues well is essential to me making these films. And I would say I'm still in the early part of my career where I'm learning how to make good films and to make them in a way that is full of energy and constrained and, and fun. And I feel like I've maybe done the first part first and the journey continues. So you've been living with this film for a year since it premiered. Mm -hmm. you, you said before that you're still processing it. And can you talk to me more about what that means to be processing the film a year after it's been finished? Yeah, I've been with this film now for about four years since the original idea came to me, which is just such a, a big part of my life and such a, you know, for four years now, every day, these are the things that I've been thinking about and working through. And the part of it that is most unpredictable and both thrilling and uncomfortable is this sort of last year of bringing it out into the world and wanting it to be a film that resonates with people, that reaches audiences, that creates a, a sort of conversation. And especially in this moment, it's just like such an up and down experience. And I think that process of sort of discovering what this film means to the world has been linked with bigger questions of what the impact it had on me making it. And the sort of dilemma is that 
the experience of, of being there in the hospital was sort of utterly life-changing. The privilege of being able to experience all of these different moments in people's lives so quickly really sort of sits in my heart and in my, in my body. And then there's a weight that comes with it. And I think what I'm sort of doing now is just letting time pass so that those experiences can settle. What do you mean a weight of feeling the need to carry this to audiences? Just being exposed to so much trauma with Midnight Family too. You know, I've, I've had the energy to go for these, these life or death moments because I find them meaningful, but there's a cost to it. And again, I see sort of core part of my craft is sort of learning how to not shy away from these potent moments of humanity, but learning more and more how to do it in a way that feels careful. Producers out there, get this guy a music documentary for his next project. Let's <laughs> cut him some uh, slack. So last question, there's a scene where Madi's talking to a client and the client asks, you know, why do you do this essentially? And Madi says, you normally I wouldn't talk about myself personally, but I think it's right to do in this moment. And she tells a story about her own father dying suddenly and that being a motivation. But, you know, she's saying normally I wouldn't talk about this personally. And yet she's saying in front of a camera and now it's in a film. And can you talk about, you know, the kind of decision making to include that? What? sort of interested me most about Mati from the beginning is she has her own style of chaplaincy. It's, it's not a field that has strict rules in the same way that medicine does or therapy or psychiatry. It's a bit more infused with what David would say, the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> if the patient experiences some type of connection or relief that's helpful to them, you did your job. And in that scene, Mati is trying something new in front of the camera and seeing what it feels like for her as a practitioner and for the patient. And that was really a turning point for the film when I was there for that moment. I, you know, I really wanted this to be a film about learning and watching Mati try things, some of which work, some of which don't, and for those learnings to stick with the audience and extend far beyond life and death situations, but just how we connect with one another. So Still Small Voice has been playing in theaters, still doing a theater run. It'll be coming out on VOD in a couple months. Luke, thank you very much uh, yeah. for joining us today and yeah, being our thanks, first Tom. filmmaker off. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, everyone. Thank you, Tom. The Indian-Canadian director, Nisha Pahuja, has been making documentaries for over 20 years. They include The World Before Her, about Indian girls being trained as militants. That was released theatrically in India, still uncommon for a documentary. Her new film is To Kill a Tiger. She traveled to a village in eastern India in the state of Jharkhand, where a father named Ranjit was seeking justice after his 13-year-old daughter was gang-raped. In India... 90% of rapes go unreported. But Ranjit was determined to bring these rapists to trial, even when other villagers pressured him to drop the case, including threats to burn down his house. Nisha began filming Ranjit early in the legal process. I asked how she found him and won the family's trust. So initially when I was making the film, I was, I was actually following the work of the there's a gender sensitization organization. There's an organization called the Shrijan Foundation. And they had, they were running a, a program in the state of Charkhand working with men and boys. And the initial plan was to actually, for three and a half years, film their work. You know, I was, I was making a film looking at masculinity in India. And over the course of filming with this organization, they started to work with, with the family. And Ranjit happened to be enrolled in this gender sensitization program. And that's how I came across the story. And so the first time I met Ranjit actually was was filming with him, you know. And it was such a, a strange process in terms of creating trust because normally, you know, normally you spend a lot of time with your subjects before you actually turn the camera on. And in this case, it was the other way around. You know, I turned a camera on and then he became sort of a key, obviously the, the, the key subject in the film. I mean, all kinds of 
ethical questions here. And one of the things that you're, I'm painfully aware of uh, watching the film throughout is this is a family that has, you know, financial difficulties. They're coping with bureaucracy, legal bureaucracy that is punishing. And I think of you behind the camera as, you know, someone who probably has a little more agency in the world. And so how do you handle that as a filmmaker? Yeah, I mean, there was, this was such a complicated film in that sense, definitely by far the most complicated film ethically that that I've made. And what I did continually, you know, throughout was to just check in, was constantly checking in with the family, you know, both sort of on camera and off camera, ensuring that what they were doing, they were doing for themselves, you know, because you, you really, in those kinds of situations... Uh, you know, when you're dealing with the caste system and, and and class in India, you have to be very, very conscious of, you know, what actually is informed consent. And so that was a question that I was always sort of navigating. And it really, for me, it was just constantly checking in with the family, constantly checking in with the organization, and also, you know, with the lawyers, right, to, to make sure that we weren't impacting what was happening. I mean, there's a point in the film where the other villagers don't seem to be that happy that a camera keeps coming and telling a story that they would really like to see go away. What were those interactions like? Not pleasant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Very, very difficult. And, you know, what happened was initially it wasn't problematic for us to be there. But as the case wore on and as it became clearer and clearer to the community that the family was not going to drop the charges, things just became very, very tense. And of course, they, they culminate in that scene when the villagers come into, into Ranjit's home and demand that we leave and, and, we, and we stop filming. Yeah. So I read a description of this film. I feel like... I've read newspaper articles about, you know, different travesties of justice uh, like this. And I wonder what you wanted to do in a film as opposed to what could be conveyed in an article. I think a richness and a nuance, you know, and a depth. I mean, the film took eight years. It, It took eight years to make. So we took it very, very, you know, very seriously. And, and I think for me as someone who has spent a great deal of, of time you know, making films in India and, and living in India, spending, you know, swaths of time in India. What I wanted to convey was a sense of the complexity and the need to actually to not judge a culture and a, a way of being that's unknown to us, that's foreign to us. So I think for me, just sort of presenting the kind of multifaceted uh, reality that, that people navigate there was, was really critical. Well, one of those nuances that come out is a discussion that happens in the village about the will of an individual, in this case, Ranjit, trying to do something that a lot of the villagers disagree with versus the collective decision-making of a village, which in different circumstances, we could imagine a, a value there, maybe a value that in our Western society and individualized society, we've totally become separated from. But I wonder if you can, you know, reflect on that. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think that it, it is about finding the balance, right? And I think in that particular instance and in that community, the fact that the individual, you know, the human rights of that child uh, wasn't considered, of course, was a travesty. But there was a there was a really interesting moment for me in the film, a really interesting response that I had that really took me by surprise. And it was actually when the villagers come into, um, into Ranjit's home and demand that we stop filming. And of course, I'm, you know, there is fear, right? Of of course, I, I was afraid. But the interesting response that really shocked me was that I felt a great deal of shame. You know, I felt a tremendous guilt that I had created or was part of some kind of rupture, you know? And it has to do with with the fact that in India, those communities are ecosystems, you know? They're, they're ecosystems of, of survival. And it is so much about the collective. And I had come in, in in some way and clumsily kind of disrupted the fabric of of that society, even though it was a necessary document, you know? But it was it was still very disturbing for me. 
So it's been eight years since you began the project, and maybe one of the strengths of having that eight years time is that the people who participated have a different distance from it. So can you talk about the dialogues you continue to have with the people who are in the film? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the family has sort of become part of my family, so I'm in, I'm in touch with them all the time. And we are going to be doing a big impact campaign with a number of organizations, Equality Now, uh, the Storyboard Collective, involving the family. It's a really interesting moment where a, a few months ago I went back to India to show some of the people that were in the film, you know, apart from the family, because they obviously had seen it long back, uh, but some of the other people that are in the film, including the ward member, you know, the guy on the, the motorcycle that, you know, who's... Who's, who's a kind of complicated uh, character. Yes. Uh, sometimes he's doing the right things, yes. and sometimes yeah. he's yeah. showing a lot of adversity to Ranjit's yeah. family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's you know, if the film has a villain, it's him, right? And I showed the film to him, and he absolutely loved the film, which really took me by surprise. And he said that he felt, after watching the film, he felt a great deal of shame. And he felt that the entire community needed to see the film in order to see what they'd put the family through, which was a, not at all what I was expecting for him to say. So it was a pleasant surprise. So is, is that something that still has yet to happen, to be able to uh, share with the whole village? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's in the works, but yes, not yet. So, I mean, you started to refer to the impact campaign that you're intending to do. And, and, and we're talking now in India, where you want to be bringing this film out, where you've had success in bringing out the world before her in theaters. And so what does that look like bringing this film out in India? For sure, the one thing that we will do is we'll work with the Storyboard Collective mm -hmm. and we'll take the film across the state of Charkhand, working with the women's rights organizations that we're affiliated with there. So that's that's a definite plan. And, you know, Ranjit will definitely come with us. I, know, I don't know about Kieran. That's, that's really up to her. So uh, Kieran, who is a pseudonym of the 13-year-old girl at the time that happened to, eight years later, she's now more of a, a, a grown woman. But can you talk about her experience watching the film? I know a big decision for you was, you know, how much to show her face even? Um, because it took so long for us to make the film, you know, by the time we were, we were finished, she was an adult. And so we started to kind of bring up this idea of, you know, do you want to come forward? Uh, would you consider it? And her parents were very supportive. I mean, from the beginning, they didn't want us to hide her. But it had to be her decision. So she asked to see the film, obviously, and our sound recordist flew to Ranchi to show the family the film. And then I zoomed them when it was over. And as soon as I saw their faces, it was so clear, you know. So she agreed right away. And then the next day I spoke to her and I asked her, you know, why she chose to come forward. And she said that for her, she couldn't believe her bravery as a 13-year-old child. And she wanted the world to see her. And I've, I've actually th been thinking about it, you know, a lot because it did stun me. You know, it really did. I, I was really sort of so happy, but kind of, you know, taken aback. And now I think it makes absolute perfect sense, you know, just thinking about the fact that as a 13-year-old, she had the strength to stand up to her community, you know, and she understood at that age, she has tre tremendous self-esteem, you know, she understands her, her self-worth. And that's so rare for for anyone, you know, even adults. And so for her to have that kind of wherewithal, it absolutely makes perfect sense that she would choose to come forward. You know, her defiance is, is what defines her. So. Well, it is extraordinary. Thank you for capturing it. Thank you for sharing it with us today. Nisha Pahucha. Symphony, now on Netflix, has its roots in the relationship between director Matt Heineman and the Grammy-winning musician John Batiste. Matt is known for documentaries such as Cartel Land and City of Ghosts. John wrote a song for Matt's film The First Wave about a New York City hospital during COVID. Matt learned that John was working on a symphony to be performed at Carnegie Hall. They agreed for Matt to follow John in the months of planning. Then came unexpected news. John's longtime partner, 
The writer Suleika Juad had to undergo chemotherapy for cancer. Suddenly the film had a different story. Matt sought out producer Lauren Domino, who has deep roots in New Orleans, something she shares with Batiste. Lauren was a producer for Garrett Bradley's films Alone and the Oscar-nominated Time. Please welcome the producer, Lauren Domino. So, Lauren, I heard that when you got the call from Matt, you were at a point where you were kind of looking to take a break. You had some intense producing experiences, and maybe you were looking to slow down a little bit when you when you got this call. Is, it, is that an accurate story? Yeah. It wasn't just producing, so I it was the pandemic, and my family suffered a lot of grief and loss during the pandemic, and just based on my work schedule, I hadn't had a chance to process a lot of it. So I was like okay, the thing that can change is work and I'm going to take some time off and really sit with myself. So I moved to New Mexico and I was like, you know, in the desert with my crystals and meditating every day and truly living my best life, like having early bird dinners and listening to birds flap their wings. And I was like, why would I ever leave this place? This is amazing. This is my life. I'm going to become a meditation teacher. And then I got a call from Matt about this film. And in that process of being in New Mexico and being, you know, my Zen self, I was also thinking a lot about my family and ancestral legacy. And my uncle kid was very sick at the time, which is another thing that I was processing. And he is an improvisational jazz legend and teacher. And he was one of John Batista's teachers as a child. So for me, it was this opportunity to sign on to this project. It felt so much bigger than me. It was a chance for me to help my uncle's legacy live on. He touched John. John touches other people. This is how legacy travels. So I couldn't say no to that. Goodbye, crystals. Hello. Oh, I still have them all on my wrist. <laughs> like I'm, I have anxiety. So it's like, hello, uh, some rose quartz and amethyst to keep me like zen and calm while I'm up here. I need some of that. Uh, I got you. <laughs> So when you came on, the Matt had been shooting hundreds of hours, incredibly intimate footage, and it was part of your task to kind of help start shaping what this story is with, that's multi-layered. So talk about how you did that. We had an amazing team of editors and AE. So I arrived immediately from New Mexico to New York to thousands of hours of footage and was like, okay, here, start watching stuff. So we literally spent about six months just watching footage. And in the watching, the way that we handle it is my big thing is as I watch, I just take notes and we all talk with each other about like, not just what visually are you feeling, but like what's in your gut? What's your gut punch? What are you feeling? And a big thing that I believe in is that, you know, films are healing. Films have a tremendous impact to change the world, but it starts with people making the work. Right. And looking at these thousands of hours of John and Suleika, you see their vulnerability, what they're willing to share. So for us in the edit, we had to meet them at that place. Like the healing starts with the people making the work. So it's like, okay, this is rising up in me as I watch this. I can't just say, I'm feeling moved. Let's include this. How am I feeling moved? How are you feeling moved? How is it touching you? If we expect audiences to react and be healed by the work we're doing, how are we bringing ourselves to that level? So that's really the way that we were able to do it, right? Of Just like letting ourselves be open, listening to our guts and listening to the footage and creating that balance of art being life, life being art. And then it was just very organic once we let all of our guards down and let ourselves be vulnerable. So watching the hundreds of hours that uh, Matt had shot, what did you learn about his craft as a, as a filmmaker? He is such a devotee to the power of verite filmmaking and a witness. Like Matt doesn't turn the camera off, right? It is ever present. And as a producer in an edit, you're like, this is so much footage. Like this is impractical. Like time does exist. There are certain constraints in the way that we view time and budgets and this is a lot. <laughs> so you're like, what do I do with all of this? And then when you sit with it, you recognize the talent and the thought process that's in when you keep rolling, things just unfold. You're ever present, like, and to trust this instinct. So in that, 
there's no other way that we could have made this film. And it really forced me to learn a lot as a producer in the way that I come in and check like, okay, maybe there are limits to time. Maybe time can bend, <laughs> you know? And so all those times when your producer instinct is to tell the director like, stop filming. Yeah. Stop filming or like, you know, I know you're really in it, but can someone please take production notes on the day so we have a sense of what happened in these 18 hours <laughs> instead of just going through and watching them. But then when you go through, you're like, oh, yeah, I get it now. I need to trust the way that you work because there is deep meaning and method to what may seem like madness. So this is a build up to this concert at Carnegie Hall that he's been looking forward to for a long time. And then you're filming that concert and the lights go out at Carnegie Hall. Can you describe that moment? So you know how you have anxiety dreams where you like show up at a place and you have no clothes on? As a producer, this is my anxiety dream come to life of this is the biggest shoot. So much money has gone in. Also, Jodan Okun is the other producer along with Matt on this project. So much time and effort. The initial concert was rescheduled because of COVID. So it's like we've been building at this point for a year for this moment and the power goes out. So it was truly like being trapped in an anxiety dream. It was also surreal because the power only went out on the stage. So the lights were still up. But, you know, this is a symphony that's changing the form. And a big part of that push is using electronic instruments that now have no power. So immediately, Jodan and I looked at each other and we're like, oh, I won't curse. But, oh, you can put in the word. Uh, is this our fault? We've bought 13 cameras into Carnegie Hall. We have plug them in the a wrong massive socket. crew. Did someone plug it in the wrong socket? Like, did we blow a fuse? Like, we broke Carnegie it's Hall. It's an old place, Carnegie it's Hall. It's an old place. And they've really, we've really pushed them to the limits to let us do all of this filming. And now the power's going out. And there's nothing else that we can do. So we are having, like, a freak out. Our blood pressure's raised. And Matt is just like bringing the steady cam, which he had to fight to get the steady cam on stage. And it's just, you know, used to being in war zone. So he was just cool as a cucumber. And John just starts channeling. And we film, and it was a moment that I couldn't see the night of because my blood pressure was just so high of like, this is such a huge fuck up. Like the movie won't be, we built, and I, sorry, I said I wasn't going to curse and then I just Just did. made the podcast an explicit episode. You know, I'm from New Orleans, y'all. You can take the girl out of New Orleans, but here I am. So I couldn't see it until we were in the edit and it, again, you know, film is such about trust and it really taught me just, okay, just, and again, this is a thing that Matt does when he keeps filming is you have to just trust that what's supposed to be revealed will happen. What's supposed to, everything is aligned. And it's this beautiful moment that we get to see all of the things that he puts into practice, him being a channel, him calling upon his experiences with this piano teacher to be ready in this moment. It's all there. And I just needed to trust. And it's so, it's like, as a producer, I've learned a lot about patience and also checking in with venues about their power capacities before <laughs> you go in. But wait, it wasn't actually your fault. It wasn't our fault. It wasn't our fault. I should say that. That's no, it wasn't. Thing to get on it's the an important here. thing to get on the record. It was not our fault, which was a huge relief. You said that the thing that first drew you into this was, you know, a feeling of paying respects to your ancestors, a feeling of how New Orleans is channeled through this story. Now that the film is done and people are seeing it. How do you think that's manifest? Like when you watch this film, what's the New Orleans part of it for you? It's in everything, you know, so much about New Orleans. You know, John is one of our most beloved sons, but so much about the place is our connection with art at all times, right? Our lived connection with joy and grief constantly, right? New Orleans is a city that's going through, that's going through and has gone through so much tragedy, yet we celebrate. And that's infused in the making of this, of like how we both in place, but as people can hold both joy and grief in both hands and keep moving and honor both. And I think that's New Orleans to a T and that is what I hope we've achieved with this film as well. So you talked about channeling some of the energy of this film into the editing process and 
And I wonder if that included for you making filmmaking more of a sustainable process for you, because it sounds like when you had gone off to New Mexico, that it was getting to be a little unsustainable for you. And does filmmaking have to be that way or is there a different way to do it? I believe that there's a different way to do it. And I'm still, you know, as Luke said earlier, in the process of trying to figure that out, but there were little things that I bought in from New Mexico, you know, both Matt and I share breathwork practice, right? We both do breathwork. So it'd be like, okay, well, we've all watched some heavy stuff in the hospital. Like how do we ground ourselves and do a breath, right? How do we create space to just be like, okay, everyone go out and let's get air. Let's talk about things. So for me, my time in New Mexico and thinking about sustainability is like, how do I weave those practices as a producer into the way that we do our work? And how do we, you know, as we think about sustainability, to me, a key point of that is how do we root what we do in care? And that makes things more sustainable. So in each day that I stepped into the office, it was like, okay, I may be tired and I may be going through whatever I'm going through and it may not feel sustainable, but how do I show care and how is care showed back to me? And that makes the process more generative. So I think, you know, when I think about sustainability, it's not just taking breaks, but it's like, how does the work we do also pour into us as we give out? Like, how is it just a fluid motion and channel of energy? So we can still keep Lauren Domino in this business. She's not going to swap out for being a meditation coach. You know, I think I'm going to try to do both, (laughs) you know, bring the meditation into the work, you know, and I've still got my crystals. I'm going to get you some too. (laughs) Well, uh, you're so valuable as a producer that we can't afford to lose you. So uh, we need to do whatever we can to keep you part of this. And, And what are the stories? I mean, this was such a special story for you. And and even the projects you worked on with Garrett Bradley were such special stories rooted in New Orleans. What are the stories that you feel like you want to be telling now? I am interested in stories that, you know, I feel like a lot of all the best documentaries do teach us how to live and teach us how to live in these times. And I'm interested in projects that just feel bigger than me that I have to rise to the occasion in whichever way the occasion presents itself for me to grow and stretch and help everyone else involved grow and stretch as well. So it's hard to pinpoint a specific thing. Like it's not just stories of New Orleans. It's often stories of the Black experience because that's something that's my lived experience and something I'm very passionate about. But ultimately it's like, what are the things that make me nervous? What are the things that I'm afraid to grow and stretch? What are the stories that I feel the world needs? And that's ultimately what I'm drawn to. Well, I can't wait to see what comes next. Thank you to Lauren Domino. Thank you. Our final guest on this episode is the Chilean director, Maitiel Berdi. Four years ago, she was on the podcast to talk about her documentary, The Mole Agent, that's a humorous detective story set in a nursing home. It was nominated for an Oscar in 2021. Her new film, The Eternal Memory, is a love story between two figures prominent in Chile, the journalist Augusto Gangora and actress Paulina Uratia. Augusto was a dissident journalist during the dictatorship of Pinochet. After that reign ended, Augusto became a familiar presence on Chilean television hosting shows about the arts and film, and also writing books. At the age of 62, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. In the early stages, when Augusto still had clarity of mind, Mighty asked if she could film his experience with the illness. He saw it as a chance to share it with others. Then COVID hit, cutting off Mighty's ability to film. She gave a camera to Paulina to keep a video diary. The final film is multi-layered with different kinds of image-making. Maiti is based in Santiago, and I interviewed her via Zoom. So, Maiti, I interviewed you on my podcast earlier this year, and you described that you first got to know Augusto Gangura because he was your teacher in film school. Can you explain what he meant to you and and to your generation? No, more than my teacher. He was like a kind of mentor of 
they he make a lot of cultural programs with TV, one of cinema. And that was my first approach to cinema and documentaries because it was many years of dictatorship that we didn't have any cultural activity and any cultural programs on television. And he was the first to rebuild that area in the television and he constructed his own cultural programs inside the public televisions. And he created one specific program that was about cinema and documentaries. And that was my first, first approach with cinema. So he really represents the beginning of, of your love for filmmaking. So the film premiered last January at Sundance. And at that time, Augusto was living with advanced Alzheimer's. And then he passed away in May after the film had been showing to some audiences. Can you talk about how his partner, Paulina, was processing all the highs and lows of this year? Yeah, it has been like special and weird morning because, yeah, when, when we released the film, he was living his last month and he didn't have the, the opportunity to see it. But for her, it was an important or a very special way to live the morning because she say that she was isolated so many years in that house. And when she passed away in May, she started to go out with the film. So she said that she take, he takes her hand to go out to the world. So she went back to the world with him. And she really wanted to speak about her pain. And the film was an opportunity to share that pain in a moment that usually the people don't speak to you about that topic. So it was like a very sharing morning and in a year that also was the 50th anniversary of the coup in Chile at the same time that we we released the film and he passed away so everything here was like a big commemoration of his job and his career. The film has themes about love and memory that are universal but Augusto's story has an extra resonance in Chile because of his work as a journalist. Can you talk about how the film was received when it was playing in Chilean theaters? Yeah, it, it has been very unbelievable because it was the most seen documentary in the Chilean history. The first weekend that we premiered, it was on the top, like first at Barnian Oppenheimer for that weekend. And the theaters were completely full and full of teenagers. That was also very weird because it was people that didn't know. So because it was another generation, but it, was, it started a very funny TikTok trend between teenagers that they, they should, it was an organic challenge that begins that the teenagers should themselves like me before to see the eternal memory, like happy. Then me before to, after to see the eternal memory, I'm crying. And it started like a challenge and who cries more. And it was like a trending topic in TikTok between teenagers. And it was like so amazing to see like people that really want to came to the theater to get emotion, to see another generation, to see another part of the history that they didn't live. That was very, very, very amazing. And it, Yes, the ranking of the top films of the year in audience. So uh, it's very unbelievable for a um, documentary, yeah. I mean, that's so interesting that it resonates that way with young people. I would have immediately understood why it would resonate with people who knew Augusto, uh, you know, lived through that period of him as a journalist. But what do you think young people are taking from this story? I think that, yeah, it was... It was the same for me. I also spoke like an adult audience and it was very amazing to see how young people connect because they all say like, I didn't see a love story like that. And I want to feel that emotion. And a lot of people, young people also say to Paulina, like, how do you do that relationship? Uh, why do you speak so much deep topics? And Paulina say all the time, like, 
I don't speak deep topics. Like, what do you see with a couple in general? And but for them, like, we have a lot of QA with with teenagers. Was like deep topic to speak with a with a with a partner. And yeah, that was uh, special. I think. So you started making this film before COVID, and then you were cut off by lockdown. So you had to adapt by getting Paulina a camera to film. What did you learn from that process of having to give up aspects of filming where you'd normally be in the room? Yeah, it was weird to me because I lost the control. And I'm usual, I am used to have the control. And it was the first time that I sent that camera to a character. Not expecting to have like a film. It was more a diary between us during pandemic. Like she was like trying to share with me what she was living. And for me at, at that moment was research material. I didn't expect that she was going to, to make good material, but, and it's, and when I received the material, I suffered because it was terrible. It was dark. It was out of focus. It was like, she never learned how to use it. But when time passed, I realized that even that I have all the access of the world to that place. There are kind of images that only a couple can shoot when they are alone. And that intimacy, it can only take place without me there in the middle of the night. And that abstraction, like when you, when you're in the university, you always make exercise with abstraction in the cinema school or you learn the abstractions of Lars von Trier. And this was a big abstraction that at the end was a big gift because it's so much profound and deep and emotional that my material, that, that it's more important than the quality of the image, I think. So I, I asked you before about how you experienced audiences watching the film in Chile. I'm curious how you've experienced audiences watching it in other parts of the world where they don't have that connection to this national history. Yeah, it, it has been amazing how the film work everywhere because I think even if they are well known in Chile, in this story about love, about relationship, and about historical memory in general, not only of my country. Like, for me, it's the payments are less one of love and how the Alzheimer can be a talent and not a tragedy. And I think that that makes impact in all the countries. And at the same time, in these years that in a lot of countries, we are facing some right figures, very radical, making negationism from history. It's not only here, but I have to listen it in my country a lot now, like people of the right side saying for the first time in many years, like making context or justifying human violations and, and the film. And I would say saying in a way, like, you can try to erase information. You can try to reinterpret information, but you cannot erase the pain people because even that he forget the memory, the, the rational one, the pain is there. The pain of the history is there. And the pain of a country will be always there. And that's for me, it's very universal as an understanding of how we have to communicate today the historical memory. It's not only the facts. It's not only the bands. For new generations, we have to communicate the narrative of the pain and how we communicate the narrative of the pain with image and with stories. And I think that's, that is the goal of, of cinema. So as I wrap this up, I want to ask you about your history of films, including The Mole Agent, The Grown Ups, Tea Time. Throughout these films, I see an underlying theme of how we care for each other. And, and I wonder if you've been conscious of of making that a focal point through your films? Yeah, I think it's unconscious, but yeah, in a way, all my films are different ways of take care 
or different questions. But in my previous film, I think that I never have an answer. I put the problem because the problem was not resolved. Like in the mullet and it's like people that was isolated from society and they feel alone and the society or the families are not seeing them and not taking care. And in the grown up, it was the same, like a group of people with Down syndrome that it's put out of society, like in a bubble and that bubble take care of him, not society. And in this case of the eternal memory, for me, it's completely the opposite because I think that I gave the answer of what do I expect of a caregiver? Like, I really expect a person that is there, that she's stopping her career for a while, that she is connected to him and she's trying to be on the world with him. Like, she brings him to the world. Like, the people that work with her integrate him. Like, that is for me the best example of how we have to take care of people. Like she always said, like that I love it, that the only way to evolve as a society is to everyone to take care of another human being at some point of our life. And and that is the film for me. It's like she knows that it's a moment of the life and she will be back and she's not desperate. She's enjoying the moment because it's like a deep understanding of that you have to make that in one moment of your life and it's love and it's relationship and that it's what it's love about so yeah i think that the eternal memory came as an answer or for an example for my previous film to what do i expect well mighty thank you for this film and thank you for taking time with us to join us from chile today thank you tom thank you very much for the invitation You've now heard four of the talks presented live last week in Los Angeles. See our show notes to learn more about the films A Still Small Voice, To Kill a Tiger, American Symphony, and The Eternal Memory. On our next episode, we'll feature our final three conversations from this event with the filmmakers behind Going to Mars, The Nikki Giovanni Project, Still, a Michael J. Fox movie, and Bobby Wine, the People's President. I want to thank the team at The Ankler, especially Janice Min and London Sanders, for inviting Pure Nonfiction to partner on this event. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan in Helsinki, and marketing manager Bella Racklin in Los Angeles. Our music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers, finishing this episode in Montclair, New Jersey. You can follow us on Instagram at Pure Nonfiction and sign up for our newsletters at purenonfiction.net. Mm-hmm.